Hello, hello. Today I'm going to address a very, very important question, which is why, in general, people are afraid of hypnosis. Now, I want to qualify the answer to my question saying that I have done about 42,000 sessions with 12,000 people over 25 years uh, practicing clinical hypnotherapy. I've taught uh, clinical hypnotherapy for about 20 years. I trained about 3,000 students, many of whom are practicing successfully today. So, my perspective coming into the answer to this question about hypnotherapy is based on this sort of experience. I have asked uh, some of my teachers who are way more experienced than I am the same questions and um, they have given me various answers. So, the answer you're about to hear comes strictly from my experience and I would love to hear what you have to think about this and what you think about whether you think it's true that people are in general afraid of hypnosis. I mean, there's a mystique, there is a, mis a mystery there when it comes to the concept of hypnosis and I want to address that right now. So, in the past, I have addressed this from a historical perspective. Of course, hypnosis has been known for over 3,000 years because there are some papyri that were discovered in Egypt suggesting that they were already able to induce altered states of mind and consciousness as a way of healing people. And the sorcerers have always existed, people who were able to confuse you and essentially take advantage of other people. Rasputin is a well-known example of somebody who may have misused some of these powers. And so, the notion of um, hypnosis being used both for healing purposes and misused for abusive purposes has always existed. Uh, in more modern times, back in the 1800s, uh, 1700s, Anton Mesmer, of course, came up with the concept of animal magnetism. Now, I have read extensively on Mesmer and I have lectured on this topic extensively as well. We know that there was a commission of about 20 prominent scientists at the time who studied the validity of animal magnetism. In that commission, the commission was handed by none less than Benjamin Franklin and that gives you an idea how important this idea was to France, to the United States. I mean, the prestige of the kingdom was involved with this whole notion of animal magnetism. And, um, <clears throat> and the famous chemist um, Antoine Lavoisier was in that commission. Dr. Guillotine from the Guillotine was in that commission. Twenty very prominent scientists studied the notion of, of animal magnetism. Later, the same uh, state of consciousness or state of mind was... people discovered that you could induce the same type of thing, not with magnetic passes, but with the use of suggestion and words. And in 1843, Dr. James Braid came to call that hypnosis. Or, or hypnotic sleep, and he, famous, uh, he, he published a famous paper in 1843 talking about the neurophenology neuro, neuro of, of uh, sleep and so forth. And, and, and ever since then, hypnosis has been a controversial topic. So, going forward a few years, of course, Freud 
the famous Freud, was interested in curing neurosis. Uh, so a neurose, this is a term that we don't use as much anymore, but this is when a person essentially becomes very repetitive and they're kind of stuck on a certain idea. Freud is very interested in solving that problem as a physician, as a medical doctor. And you got to remember, for as much as people talk about Freud today, it's easy to forget that he was a medical doctor from the University of Vienna, which would be equivalent to graduating, you know, to being a physician from Harvard or, or even more prestigious than, than perhaps being a graduate of Harvard nowadays. I mean, it was an enormously prestigious institution at that time. And he was a medical doctor, graduated from that institution. There's nothing illicit about his academic background. This was a, a person of, of a great reputation and great uh, academic credentials and so forth. And there's nothing to indicate that Freud was crazy or deranged or anything like this. So it is true that according to papers that Freud used, experimented with cocaine as, um, as a medication to release people from this neurosis because of course it's a stimulant and he figured that if you could stimulate certain parts of the brain, then perhaps the person could sort of get a jump start on their lives and change their lives. But everything changed for, for, for Freud when he found out, and you know, this is an era where there was no internet and there was no Google and you know, things were much, much slower than nowadays. But he heard of a, of a French doctor who was claiming to cure neurosis in, in France, in Paris, at the Salterpierre Hospital, uh, just outside of Paris. His name was Jean-Martin Charcot. And Charcot was doing this, was curing, he was also a physician, by the way, from a very prestigious university in Paris and worked at a major hospital. So these were not um, people, you know, these were smart people, well-credentialed people, and Dr. Charcot, demonstrated to the satisfaction of the standards back then that he was able to cure all of these neuroses using this thing called hypnosis. Freud went to Paris, became a student of Dr. Charcot, and it's interesting in history how he became his, his favorite student in a sense. So he offered to translate Dr. Charcot's books into German. And of course, for Dr. Charcot, that was, a, that was a big deal. His books would now be read in Germany, as opposed to only in France. And in exchange for the free translation, he took on Dr. Freud as a student in protégé. And, and Freud learned how to hypnotize, came back to Germany, Austria, and used hypnosis for, for a number of years as a primary tool to heal as a medical doctor. But th th there are several, you know, there's a paper in which Freud discusses why he abandoned the use of hypnosis. And he, he cites three different reasons. And I have often thought about this and I've discussed this at length in classes and other, in other places. One of the reasons that he, that he cites for abandoning hypnosis is that it doesn't always work. Now, there's absolutely nothing that always works. I mean, what he came up with as a substitution, which is this idea of a psychotherapy or, or free association, that doesn't always work either. And, and medications don't always work, and surgeries don't always work, and nothing always works. 
But, you know, we think that if a medication is effective most of the time or some of the time, then it's a good medication, right? So in the case of hypnosis, for various reasons, it is true that it doesn't always work, just as nothing always works. The other reason that he cited was that many times a person is healed from a problem using hypnosis, but the problem comes back. And this is a topic that we address very intensely, very deeply in classes. It is true, by the way. And the easiest and quickest way to explain why that can happen in some cases is the analogy of the onion. The mind is like an onion, if you will, and you could have a problem whose root is in a deeper layer of the onion, and we address this from a more superficial perspective. The problem is initially dissolved, but the roots remain, and then the problem sort of springs up back again. Of course, this is a very crude analogy, but it gives you an understanding as to why it is, in fact, possible for a person to be to resolve a problem with the use of hypnosis, and the problem returns later. But listen, that objection to hypnosis applies to everything else in life. How many, you know, I used to joke with my students, how many of you have taken a bath and then discovered two days later that it didn't work, you're still dirty and you got to take another bath? Or how many of you have eaten a meal and a day later discovered that you're still hungry, you got to eat again? How about you worked for a week, made some money, spent it, now you discovered that you got to work again because the money is gone, and on and on and on. And these, of course, are somewhat silly examples, but, but you get the point. Nothing necessarily works permanently. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. And um, I think it's an interesting objection, but it's probably not enough to abandon the use of hypnosis as a therapeutic tool. Now, the third reason that Dr. Freud listed for, for abandoning hypnosis as a therapeutic intervention was that he said that hypnosis is a very mystical process. There's something very mystical about it, I think was the term that he used. And you got to remember that these guys were working, Breuer, Freud, you know, um, um, Mach, Ernst Mach, you know, all of these scientists, all of these people were working at the turn of the century about 120 years ago. It's, it's difficult to, you know, it's a long time ago, but not too long, right? And the world was very different. And at the turn of this century, from the 19th to the 20th century, science as we know it today was still a little bit intermingled with religion. And so Ernst Mach, for instance, a German scientist, published a paper saying that the success of science as an epistemological method, as a way of attaining knowledge, hinged upon its separation from religion and mythology. Because up until then, those two things were very much still intertwined. I'm talking about 120 years ago. And so, you know, this seems so medieval, right? But it was still, science was still a little bit imbued with ideas of mysticism, religion, spirituality, mythology, and so forth. And what these guys wanted to do was completely separate science from the other stuff. And Freud said, look, we cannot rely on something that is so mystical as a medical form of therapy. So he says, let's come up with something a little bit more repeatable and uh, something a little bit more manualized, as we call it. By that, we mean that I can write a manual, and if you follow the procedure, you can do the same thing with your patient, as opposed to something that requires years 
of mystical development to be able to do. So this was the reason that he used to abandon hypnosis as a therapeutic intervention. Now, let's go back to more modern times and ask ourselves the question, why are people, if you, if you stop the people in the street and ask them randomly, are you afraid of hypnosis? Of course, everybody's going to say no, because we don't like to address our fears. We don't like to say, yes, I'm afraid of the dark. Yes, I'm afraid of this. Yes, I'm afraid of flying. People don't like to, to confront those things. But in truth, when a person comes to see a hypnotist, there's a huge barrier there initially until they realize what's really going on there. And so there are two reasons when, when a person becomes comfortable enough to address their apprehensions about hypnosis, two things come up. One is the notion that, well, I'm going to essentially go to sleep here, and what could this person do to me? So if the hypnotist is a man or whatever knows, okay, could, could something bad happen here that I would be unaware of? Now, I have been a hypnotist, like I said, since 1996, professional hypnotist. I have never heard of that. In, in therapy, so when we use hypnosis as a form of therapy, we call that hypnotherapy. So you're talking a lot, and there's a lot of understanding and empathy. So occasionally, you will hear of a romantic interlude between a therapist and a client. This happens across all kinds of therapeutic interventions, including physical medicine. I mean, I have an uncle who married one of his doctors. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's it, it, it happens because you're working so closely with the person, and so romantic feelings can develop. But I have never heard of a case that is, you know, it, it, it's a tough call there, but, you know, you are dealing with an adult capable of making decisions. It's not like you're raping a child, right? And so, may I stop myself here for just a second? If you're getting value out of this information, would you please consider subscribing to the channel and perhaps even liking the video? I have a lot of information to share with you coming up, and it would encourage me and it would also help other people who are in dire need of this information to receive it if you would kindly consider liking the video and subscribing to the channel. Thank you very much. Let's go back to the program. The person is a bit vulnerable because they're opening up to their therapist, and we could call that a little bit abusive, whatever, but that's the extent. And I'm not saying that's okay or not okay. I'm just saying that's the biggest deal I have ever heard. I have never heard of a hypnotist, you know, actually, quote-unquote, putting a person to sleep and taking advantage of that person because it just doesn't happen. The idea that this person would be oblivious to what's going on is just, it just doesn't happen that way. It's just not true, right? So the person in hypnosis is capable of saying no, getting up, walking away. So it's just not true, perhaps in the movies, but not in reality. And so that doesn't happen. You don't hear about that. And if you heard about that, we've got to investigate. I have a whole book here about supposed abuses of hypnosis that were studied by this investigator over about 100 years, allegations of abuse by hypnotists. And all of these were investigated thoroughly by, by really experienced people, and not one case of true abuse of the hypnotic state has been confirmed, at least to that investigator's knowledge. So, whatever, that's up to you. But um, So, one type of concern is, what could the hypnotist 
do to me, right? What's interesting about that is that people go to a bar, they drink into oblivion, they black out from drinking, and they don't think the bartender is going to rape me. They don't think my boyfriend, my girlfriend is going to steal my... They don't think of those things. They're going to surgery and they totally fall asleep under anesthesia. And we don't think that the surgeon is going to steal your organs and sell it to other people. We go into surgery all the time. We trust that the process has a medical purpose. I don't know why, when it comes to hypnosis, a few people say that, well, but if I fall asleep with the hypnotist, first of all, it's not sleep, but whatever. You know, I don't know what could happen. So we realize that that answer, I'm afraid of hypnosis because I don't know what could happen to me while I'm gone or while I'm under, as people sometimes would say. That explanation doesn't hold too much water. So we got to dig a little bit deeper. So then, um, when you do dig a little bit deeper, people say, well, actually, it isn't, it isn't that I don't trust you. It's that I'm afraid of losing control. You know, I'm afraid of just losing control. Well, we all lose control every time, you, every time you go to sleep, every time you wake up, every time you cross the street, every time you drive on the road. You know, everybody else, in a sense, is controlling your life because... If the guy driving on the opposite side of the road that decides to veer onto my car, you know, he will have a lot to do with my destiny. He or she will have a lot to do with my destiny. So I have to trust when I'm driving on the road that the drivers next to me, you know, are also preserving their lives. And when you fly into a plane and all kinds, in other words, we don't have as much control of our lives as we think we do. And we're okay with that because it's part of being alive. So, again, when a person uses a drug or goes into a bar and drinks, they also, to a very large extent, lose control. And yet people do this all the time. And I'm not recommending, suggesting, or comparing or contrasting. I'm just saying that we are okay giving up control under so many circumstances. Why would it be so different to go into a hypnotist's office and, quote-unquote, lose control? And so you know, what could happen here? I'm going to start quacking like a duck. I'm going to start barking like a dog. These are the things that people have seen in movies, which may or may not be real. We don't do this. We're therapists. People pay us to solve a problem. We don't have time to waste, you know, making people, even if I could do that, there's no time to waste. People have a problem to solve and there's urgency because they're suffering. That's why they go to a therapist, right? And so none of this is real in a sense. And yet this is another reason that people often cite, well, I'm afraid of losing control. But again, for the reasons that I cited earlier, it's difficult to understand that that's really what's happening there. So over my years as a therapist, and this is a bit controversial, and I'd like to hear your opinions on this. Over my years, what I have discovered is that we're much more afraid of rocking the boat. We're much more afraid of discovering who we really are. Because it is very... There's this intuitive notion that if I dig really deep into myself, into my unconscious, I'm going to discover who I really am, right? And so the notion, the notion that I may have been living a life that isn't really my life, is a little scary. Because then that means that I wasted my life. And so I prefer not to rock the boat, not to discover too much and keep the status quo and keep on going. I was talking to a lady yesterday, as an example, who literally told me, I don't like to rock the boat. 
So she was married for a number of years, never really had a deep talk with her husband. According to her, the husband eventually left and they, they still never had a deep talk about anything because she's always been afraid of rocking the boat. Don't ask too many questions. Don't inquire. Don't find out. Just have a good time. Smile. Put on a smile and keep the ball rolling and things will be okay. So, of course, a person that holds on to that belief could never go into a hypnotist office because imagine as you begin to enter the hypnotic state the kinds of things that you discover about yourself. Imagine, for instance, changing the subject to the example. Imagine a person who tells you that they have an enemy. They're going to deep hypnosis. They discovered, and this is an example that I'm making up, that that enemy of theirs is actually their soulmate. And again, I'm making up these stories to explain to you that when you begin to dig deeper into things, your conception of reality can change so much. And the best example I found to illustrate this in the classes, and I used to tell my students, I, you know, these people got to give me some royalty because I've used it, I've advertised this so many times in the classes. But the best example is the movie The Matrix, when you take the red pill. I mean, everything changes. It opens up your understanding to a whole different set of realities that you had no idea of before. So if you saw the movie The Matrix, the original one, and you realize when the person, Neil, takes the red pill and kind of opens up his awareness to a whole different reality, that's in a sense what happens when a person begins to use hypnosis frequently. And so it actually changes your entire conception of reality. What is important to most people isn't important to you. And what is important to you isn't important to the majority of people. So you become a little different from, from most people. And then you have to, you have to find a way to, to mingle and to have relationships. It's very difficult. You know, it, sometimes it can be a very lonely path. And, and so people are afraid of changing to the degree that they become isolated. I totally get it. I totally get it. So, fortunately, if you're contemplating going to visit a hypnotherapist to solve a problem, you don't need to worry about that because it is possible, and remember what I'm telling you, it is possible to solve a problem without necessarily changing your entire life around. It is possible. So, I'll give you an example. If a person wants to quit smoking, that's not so common anymore, but if a person wants to quit smoking, they can quit smoking by, by the help of a hypnotist without necessarily transforming their entire conception of reality. It is possible to lose weight and gain muscle and reshape your body without necessarily changing your entire cosmo cosmology and cosmogony. You know, it is possible to solve a problem without necessarily digging deep into those connections with reality, without taking the red pill to follow with the matrix analogy. It is possible. And so you shouldn't refrain from using a very effective tool, a tool that has been proven over 3,000 years, to solve a problem that may be bugging you for a while, and a problem that most likely has resisted other forms of solution. Listen, those 42,000 sessions that I did, those 12,000 people, they all told me essentially, look, I've tried solving this problem in all kinds of ways, but I couldn't. Because if they, because the hypnotist is not their first line of defense. 
they try their doctor, their witch, their 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 all kinds of other their their aunt, their abuela. They try, you know, they drink the tea. They they do the the, the rub the, the the wound with whatever you know snake oil, whatever. They try all kinds of alternatives before they go to a hypnotist. So I've always said I'm a therapist of last resort, and and, and I know that, and people have always told me this. So when everything else fails, they go to the hypnotist and we solve the problem because we go right to the root of it and the root is inside of the person. So I don't have the solution, but I know where to get it and it's inside of the person. And so people ask me, but are you an expert on addictions? Are you an expert on weight? No, I'm not an expert on any of those things, but I'm an expert on finding the solution to the person's problem within the person. I'm only an expert in the in the process of helping them find within themselves that which would liberate them from a problem. I'm not an expert on their lives, but on the process of uncovering the solution. And so I encourage you to seek your local hypnotist and improve the quality of your life. And don't worry, you don't have to turn your entire world upside down. You don't have to take the red pill. You can if you want to. You can pursue hypnosis as a form of red pill if you want. I have gone down that road and, you know, it's been really interesting. In some other video, I'll tell you about that. But I haven't lost touch with reality. (laughs) You know, I'm still here. And so it is possible to dwell in two worlds. And you can do the same thing if you choose to, but you don't have to if all you want is to solve a problem and improve the quality of your life. As always, I'd love to hear your comments and your questions on this topic. Please let me know if you agree or disagree, if you are afraid of hypnosis or not. And if you agree that at the root of it all, we're really afraid of rocking the boat when we say that we don't like or we don't believe in hypnosis. Let me know what you think in the comments below. I'd love to hear some, you know, hear from you. Thank you and blessings.